Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen. We are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM and reaching the world by streaming at www.wcev1450.com. If you're new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. You can keep up with us by following and liking us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, where you will find us at Radio Islam USA. And also, if you like what you hear, you can share it. You can go back and revisit this episode and all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. So if that's SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, you will find us once again at Radio Islam USA. So Radio Islam family, we have a great um, uh, a guest that I'm really uh, excited to get into conversation with. Um, we have on the line with us Khalid Beydoun. He is a law professor, uh, he's a critical race theorist, and the author of a phenomenal book, uh, American Islamophobia, Understanding the Roots and Rise of Fear. So I want to get right into it. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Yes, sir. So um, I read the book. Uh, I intend to read it again. Uh, I've encouraged others to read it. I really, uh, I just found it really uh, insightful on, on so many fronts. What was the impetus for this particular book? So there was a couple of drivers that wanted me to write this book uh and i'd say the two emphases are uh you know I, i've been spending a lot of time over the last five to seven years conducting all this you know academic and legal research on uh the war on terror on surveillance on you know how the law goes about constructing muslim identity both historically and presently um and i realized that a lot of that work wasn't you know reaching the masses it wasn't trickling down to uh, the audiences that I wanted to reach, both audiences in you know the Muslim community, but also beyond the Muslim community. So, given what was happening with the political moment, especially with the rise of Trump and then the escalation of Islamophobia, I just thought it was you know a really critical juncture uh, to write a book uh, that could be broadly accessible um, and reach you know a range of audiences uh, at this time. Mm. You know, yeah. Um, you know what? One, one of the things that you brought up in this book that I was not aware of, and I'm always I'm always happy to come across these these nuggets of uh, new information. I was familiar with the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, of course, the, the 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 internment of the Japanese. I think most most folks are, but you laid out something. You laid out a history of Islamophobia that was legislated in the United States that I don't think many people are. Would, could you expound on that a little bit? That 100 and, was 147 years. Yeah, so there, there was a considerable, really extensive time period in the United States where there was a law in place called the Naturalization Act of 1790. Uh, this law was enacted almost as soon as the United States beca- became a sovereign nation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the law mandated that in order to become a naturalized citizen, you had to be white. You had to persuade... A, uh, a judge, a civil court judge, that you were in fact white. Uh, and this law prevailed up until 1952. Now the challenge is, uh, for Muslims specifically, Muslim immigrants coming from abroad, coming from a range of places, uh, you know, the modern Arab world, the South Asian Peninsula, Africa, and so on, you had this prevailing system of Orientalism, which many of us uh, know what that means. It was this, it was this uh, discourse, if you will, that divided uh, the world into a binary. You had the West, which came to define itself in mirror opposite and antithetical terms 
to the Muslim world. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so in short, if, if the West was democratic, the Muslim world had to be fascist and totalitarian. If the West is where liberalism flourished, um, the Muslim world had to be oppressive uh, and tyrannical. If the West is where equality and patriarchy was the, was uh, being confronted, then the Muslim world had to be savage and sexist. So mm-hmm. all these stereotypes that drive uh, modern Islamophobia were rooted and entrenched in this uh, discourse of Orientalism. Now, this wasn't only a discourse, but it was in, it was embraced by the courts. Right. Right. The courts began to see Muslim identity um, from this Orientalist perspective and framed Muslim identity as a standalone, distinct racial identity that was antithetical with whiteness. Now, again, remember, this, this law was in place. And in order to become a naturalized citizen, you have to be white. This obviously created a situation where Muslim immigrants on, on grounds of their religious identity could not become citizens on grounds of being Muslim. So, you know, I wrote this article in uh, uh, the Washington Post when Trump proposed the travel ban to say, this isn't new. This mm-hmm. idea of prohibiting and restricting Muslims from becoming bar, you know, part of the body politic or part of the citizenry is rooted in this history uh, of Orientalism, which comes to spawn and mother what we now call Islamophobia today. Right, right. Now, you, you, you talked about the, 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 there's a, a phenotypical um, exclusion, right, where we're looking at anybody who has uh, Arab features, uh, quote unquote Arab features as to be Muslim, and one of the cases that you uh, that you talked about uh, where courts had to pass uh, judgment on whether a person would be granted citizenship or not was of a I believe it was a, a Lebanese Christian yeah. who who was excluded and had to and basically was granted was granted whiteness and granted his citizenship on the grounds number one that he's not Muslim, but um, and and two that he could look to be. Uh, I guess to pass as white, and for those who are uh, for African American listeners in particular, I think this is something that's going to resonate uh, with them, with the history of of those, you know, throughout, especially through uh, Reconstruction or Jim Crow uh, South, who who escaped, you know, these uh, oppressive rules uh, and strictures by passing for white. So I, th- I thought that was um, uh, an extremely interesting point. Was that something that took place? Um, more often than, than folks might realize? Oh, it didn't, again, because it, it, it was incentivized by the law. It was mandated by law. Because the law, because the law mandated whiteness as a prerequisite for citizenship up until 1952, this effectively moved um, Arab immigrants, uh, the Lebanese immigrants you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, who came in large number from Syria and Lebanon really early on, South Asian immigrants, to effectively prove to uh, these courts that they were, in fact, white because they wanted citizenship, right? right. That's why we have this psychology that still prevails today, the idea that immigrants from the Arab world, the South Asian Peninsula, and other parts of the world um, are so you know, zealous in pursuing whiteness. It comes from the law because at one juncture, whiteness was a formal component and prerequisite for citizenship. Right. Right, um, and that's why still today you have Arab Muslim communities, South Asian Muslim communities, who are Muslim and are very you know proud of uh, being Muslim. You know, have this conflicting psychological desire to be white. 
right? And you've yeah. got to anchor this in this legal history, which prevailed for roughly 162 years. One of the things that I also was um, appreciative of, and it didn't surprise me because when I when I was doing a little bit of reading uh, about you and I saw critical race theorists, I said, okay, makes makes absolute sense. Uh, this intersectionality that you presented the work with in terms of uh, anti-blackness uh, and connecting that to uh, anti- uh, uh, or Islamophobic uh, sentiments. And I want to ask you to maybe uh, to give me give me your commentary and stretch it a little bit further and what is the intersection that you see with now uh with trump i listened to him earlier today and mm-hmm. he was talking about the uh the, the immigrants this this quote-unquote caravan uh that's coming and he basically talked about them as uh rapists and murderers again mm-hmm. so once again this phenotypical uh bias um or degradation what do you think about that and so, so I think I think the Trump moment is, is really similar to what we were talking about just now, with this naturaliz- naturalization era where whiteness was a prerequisite for citizenship. If, if you look at his primary slogan, "Make America Great Again," that's effectively a dog whistle, a covert call to restoring white supremacy. We all know that, right? right so it's right. been discussed widely by scholars, academics, activists, pundits, and so on. Um, Trump is trying to restore, uh, you know, kind of this mythical past moment uh, of white supremacy, uh, where, you know, whiteness was far more than just, you know, you know the, uh, the demographic majority of the country, but it was the psychology and the epistemology that drove this nation's identity uh, forward. Mm. Now, when we talk about anti-black racism, right, I, I, I think it's, it's critical to know, and again, this is anchored in law, right. that... Part and parcel of the pursuit of whiteness is to engage and participate in anti-black racism, right? So when we, so when we instruct immigrants from uh, the Arab world, the South Asian Peninsula, uh, East Asia, and so on, that if you want to become American and want to pursue whiteness, the most, the most vivid way to do so is to engage in anti-black racism. Right, right. Right. And, and, and that's why you see Arab Muslim communities and immigrants who come stateside, uh, South Asian Muslim immigrants and so on. Um, the way they prove their, uh, you know, effectively their, their American bona fides, the way they demonstrate that they do belong uh, to this nation um, and are assimilating towards, uh, you know, whiteness as closely as possible, even though they might never achieve it, is to perpetuate in distinct forms of anti-black racism. So that's one of the key ways that, you know, anti-black racism um, in this, this moment of rising nativism uh, and xenophobia uh, summoned by Trump is, is uh, reflected. I think it's reflected in other ways, right? Obviously, you know, Trump has made, uh, you know, very explicit sort of castigations with regard to immigrants coming from Africa. He's called uh, the entire continent countries, you know, whole countries. Right. He's made the conflation that anybody coming from Haiti, uh, you know, has AIDS and so on. Um, so the, the racial stereotypes tied to black immigrants are distinct from the stereotypes that are assigned to Latinx immigrants or uh, Arab immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all xenophobia, but it's distinct uh, xenophobia that's tweaked and tailored by uh, race and racism. Uh, and, it, and it's certainly one that also uh, reflects a... Uh, an upholding of this idea of, of a white norm, um, 
once again, whiteness as, as a property to be desired uh, and, uh, and, and sought out, uh, sought after. So um, what, are you, what are your thoughts on, because uh, when we talk about Islamophobia, right, uh, you wrote that it's, it's a word that has gained more traction since, uh, mm-hmm. since 2007. All right, now, now there, there are other folks who, who talk about it, uh, who say that it's been ex- in existence, but I don't think that was your argument. It being in existence was not the point. The point is it became more popularized and yeah. more part of the, you know, the public, uh, the, the lexicon, if you will. Um, for a generation of folks now, right, it's been 18 years, who mm-hmm. know nothing but the, the current climate, who, who may not understand that wh- exactly what the difference was before now. How do you sensitize uh, those? How do you how do you sensitize those people? These these younger people. You know it's hard because I think <laughs> I'm I'm old enough now where I remember the United States and living in the United States before the war on terror, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this this uh, you know this war on terror project, which mainstreams and legitimizes Islamophobia uh, in a really robust way. Um, but for younger people who were, you know, 90s babies and came up uh, after the 9-11 terror attacks, uh, especially, you know, Muslims, this is all they know. All, the, all they know is the war on terror. And all they know that, you know, all they know is that Islamophobia is, um, you know, just a routine part of being Muslim American uh, today. Right. right. That you confront Islamophobia in a range of ways. What this book tries to do, I think, and one of the primary takeaways of this book is to you know broaden our understanding and our conception of Islamophobia. I think one of the dangers, um, and with the uh, with the observation you made earlier, is that yeah, definitely the term has become far more popular in the last five to seven years, uh, specifically because of the rise of Trump. Right, he mainstreamed the term um, because of the things he said during his presidential campaign. But I think we tend to caricature our understanding of Islamophobia really narrowly, right? Mm-hmm. We tend to think about it, um, and we tend to think about Islamophobes as individuals who are engaging in really, you know, explicit, explicit, um, and you know, blatant forms of bigotry, like a Trump, uh, like the individuals who are attacking visible Muslims, uh, like the hate mongers who are organizing these, uh, you know, anti-Sharia uh, protests at masjid or mosques across the country. Mm-hmm. But it's far more than that, right? I think we also have to appreciate and acknowledge that uh, the state is actually engaged in Islamophobia by way of uh, war on terror policy, by way of war on terror policing. So uh, we've got to think about the U.S. Patriot Act. We've got to think about countering violent extremism. We've got to think about the travel bans. We've got to think about um, see something, say something policy. All of these laws that are built upon this Islamophobic presu- presumption that ties Muslim identity to terrorism is Islamophobia. Right. And it's and it's advanced by the Bush administration, it's advanced by progressive or liberal administrations like the Obama administration, and it's vividly uh, advanced by the Trump administration. Yes. Now, you mentioned the uh, CBE uh, as an example of state-sponsored Islamophobia, and that immediately took me back to a portion in the book where you, uh, where you, you laid out how th- there's a strategy that has been used when— um, I guess European powers have engaged, uh, whether whether they're uh, Africans or I just basically I just say people of color, uh, and it has always been rooted in division, divide and conquer, divide and conquer, 
And you wrote about this, which, and I thought this was really interesting, that CVE has been employed in ways that pit Shia, Shia uh, communities against Sunni communities. Mm-hmm. Talk, would you talk a little bit about that? Because I don't think people have really considered that aspect of yeah. Uh, CVE. Yeah, so, you know, counter-radicalization, specifically, uh, you know, the Obama administration countering violent extremism, what it does is it, 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 it needs informants, it needs Muslim uh, interlocutors to make it work, mm-hmm. right? So it kind of gravitates away from the electronic surveillance model that was mainstreamed after uh, the 9-11 terror attacks with the Patriot Act and effectively adopts a model where we're going to find Muslims to help us monitor gather data, and then pass on this data to law enforcement. That's effectively what counter-radicalization policing is. So in order to make it work, what the state does is it, it looks to investigate and identify what kind of fractures there are, what kind of divisions there are in the Muslim community that enable, uh, that, that, are, that are possible areas for exploitation and discovery of informants, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the key, key areas are, I um, mean, obviously with what's happened geopolitically in the last three to five years uh, is sectarian division, right? We know that in the United States, because of what's going on in the region, that uh, sectarian tension has exacerbated, um, specifically across, uh, you know, Shia Shia and Sunni lines. Right. Um, So what's happening now is, uh, not now, but with the Obama administration, is uh, he identified uh, Shia Muslim communities uh, and civic elements as really opportune and strategic partners to carry forward counter-radicalization policing uh, because radicalization is, is framed by theorists as a Sunni phenomenon. So why not collaborate with uh, Shia Muslim elements who also uh, view ISIS, AQ, Shabab, Boko Haram, um, you know, these, uh, you know, fringe sort of Sunni elements uh, as, you know, common enemies, basically. Right. Right. So they work with Shia communities, and they awarded uh, an organization here uh, right outside of Detroit, Michigan, with a half-million-dollar grant, largely based on their Shia Muslim identity. Now, this isn't only novel to Shia. They did the same thing with Sufi Muslim communities in Montgomery County, uh, right outside of D.C. They work closely with this organization, a Sufi Muslim organization, called Word, because obviously we know in the region that Sufis are also persecuted by by fringe um, groups, right, like ISIS and so on. Right. right. right so the state looks uh, to these divisions to carry forward this divide-and-conquer sort of strategy that you talk about. You know, what it what this brings to mind uh, for me is that there is a, I mean, e- even as we talk about these external uh, factors we're dealing with, but as a Muslim, a extremely diverse Muslim community in the United States, uh, it shows that there is such a need for communication, uh, so that, so we can, so we not allow ourselves to be used as the pawns uh, in someone else's game. Um, yeah. uh, in in addition to that, this idea of uh, of of calling out Muslims, uh, our public intellectuals, our our religious leaders, uh, you know, those who who have a platform, uh, f- for them to have the demand placed on them to stand up and denounce quote-unquote Muslim Islamic terrorism, uh, whether it's uh, an incident that happens here or something that happens uh, abroad. Uh, this, this whole idea of putting Muslims in the def- on the defensive, uh, 
that's something that I really want to see more pushback on. And I felt like uh, I felt I saw a lot of that in this book. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's so another point I wanted to make is that so, so CVE sounds a lot and, and is a lot like Pro, right? Yes. So this policing program that was used uh, to effectively divide, conquer uh, and dismantle uh, a radical black organization seeking self-determination, seeking empowerment, and seeking uh, and providing social services to disenfranchised and dehumanized communities, right? So that sure. was a strategy of Coento Pro. Uh, counter-radicalization adopts the same structures and strategy of Coento Pro. So in, and I don't talk about this explicitly in the book, mm-hmm. um, but the book I think provides a good springboard is that uh, non-black Muslim communities can learn a tremendous amount from black Muslim communities based on the experience and based on the wisdom gained from having, you know, endured programs like Coento Pro. Sure. Right? We, we have the intellectual and experiential capital within the Muslim community, uh, and I oftentimes think our institutions and our leadership um, don't look to that wisdom. Because these are new models. These are new policing strategies. They're old, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They have new names. Right. Um, and I think that's an area where uh, we definitely need to be more intelligent about moving forward. Uh, but the question you raised, I think, is a really good one. And uh, there's definitely a lot of points of uh, divergence, distinction, and difference within the Muslim community. Um, and it's fine to have intellectual disputes, and it's fine to have you know, even strategic differences. But it's really unintelligent to sort of buy in and partake in this process of division and conquer from within. Right. Yeah. So yeah. when I see call out culture, when I see sort of like short sighted um, condemnations of specific individuals or organizations, some are legitimate. I'm not going to lie to you. I've been <laughs> some of those critiques myself, you know, yeah. but, I, but I think we have to think about uh, the long term goal and keep, you know, keep our eyes on the long term prize um, of, of really looking to dismantle the war on terror. Um, and white supremacy, and white supremacy is, is core, it's foundational, it's at the crux of the war on terror. Yeah, it is, it is, uh, un, it underpins it. Um, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and, and that is a problem as well. But one of the things that I, that I heard recently was this disassociation from our actions as a country, uh, present and historically, uh, that have affected the conditions of people, you know, in other, in, in other countries um, and disassociating their actions from from ours or their response from ours. So that's a point I would like for us to to become a, a bit more uh, resolute in our efforts to tie these things together so that we're not having these one sided conversations. Um, people we have people immigrating here. We have terrorism. Uh, we have uh, extremists, but we don't look to the root as to how these things came about. Yeah, I think that's exactly true. I think, I mean, unfortunately, I think a lot of the strategy uh, that institutions and even, you know, many leaders are employing is, is really myopic. It's kind of reactive, right? There's, I, I don't see a really robust, proactive strategy to confront um, much of what's going on today. Um, but, you know, I, I think one thing I want this book to do mm-hmm. um, is, you know, apart from just being a book that you read and kind of like, you know, just leave alone is for it to inspire and provoke conversation. 
you know, I think what I try to do with this book, and especially as a critical race theorist, is, is, is to say that, hey, you know, racism, anti-black racism, xenophobia, um, uh, nativism, and so on, we, we can't look at these things as being distinct from the war on terror and Islamophobia today. Right. You know, Islamophobia is, is, is by no means a modern phenomenon, even though it's a new term, it's a new concept, mm-hmm. right? It's driven forward, it's fueled by these really long-standing and venerable systems. Right. Um, so... You know, hopefully, you know, that analysis can contribute to, you know, provoking, um, you know, long-term strategies uh, that we can employ as a community. What are some of the responses that you've gotten uh, thus far? You know, I've, I've gotten, <laughs> it depends on who, yeah, who from. I've gotten responses from the trolls and the Islamophobes, um, you know, saying things like, you know, Islamophobia is a made-up term, um, you know, that kind of thing. But I've gotten great responses from, um, you know, academic scholars within the critical race theory field, you know, many of my colleagues. Mm -hmm. Um, I've gotten great responses from many, you know, activists I respect in the community. Uh, A common friend of ours, uh, Leila Polos, who said, (laughs) who, uh, (laughs) you know, is somebody who I really look to. I think she has a really, uh, she has her finger on the pulse of much of what's going on in the community. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, she really... Uh, you know, appreciate the way the book was, you know, framed in a, you know, a humanized, accessible way. Yes. But I've also gotten, you know, great responses from youth, um, mm-hmm. you know, teenagers and so on, who have really taken to the book. Um, and those are the sorts of responses I'm looking for from Muslim and non-Muslims, um, you know, who, who don't have the, uh, you know, the academic uh, training, who aren't activists, right. um, you know, who don't have advanced degrees. You know, those are the real demographics and audiences I really want to reach. Yes. And I'll say this as well. I think that there is an opportunity within the reading of this book by uh, by the diverse population that we have. There is an opportunity for for people to see this uh, this intersection uh, that that will hopefully that spawns or strengthens uh, coalitions, because, you know, when people see themselves in the story then they they feel they have a, a vested interest in the outcome. Uh, it means more to them. So I appreciated this this focus on uh, intersectionality, even as you, you know, we're talking about Orientalism, we're talking about, you know, Islamophobia, uh, but there was, I feel like there's room for everybody to see themselves uh, in this. So I, 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 as a reader, I appreciated that. No, thank you very much. And I think, the, I think the, one of the more beautiful things about Islam, about the religion, is that, um, our, these coalitions are already established for us. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, by virtue of being Muslim, you know, you could be white, you could be black, you can be Arab. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings upon him, final sermon provides us with a really explicit, you know, call, uh, you know, to building, not only building, but having these coalitions across racial and ethnic lines. Um, you know, all we have to do is heed that call. They're already right. there for us. Right, right. Okay, so I, I took a look at your upcoming speaking uh, schedule, and uh, I noticed that Chicago was noticeably absent. No, no, I got, I got two, I got, <laughs> I got two spots in Chicago. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, one one is enlisted, but um, but uh, yeah, I'm speaking at the University of Chicago uh, on May second. Nice, nice. At, okay. At the, at the uh, at their bookstore, and then uh, inshallah, the next day, May third, I'll be speaking at the uh, the Care Chicago office. Wonderful. Uh, you know what? Now they're right down the street from us. 
we would love to have you stop in and, and, and talk with us uh, again. Uh, <laughs> so just put that invitation out there for you. Yeah, we're, we are walking distance uh, from Care Chicago. Our, those are our, our friends over there. So No, no, we'll definitely make that happen. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, we pray for your continued uh, success. Keep doing the, the good work that you're doing. Thanks, my brother. It means a lot. Big fan of the show. And uh, inshallah, we'll see you in Chicago. Inshallah. All right, Radio Islam family, we've been talking with Khalid Beydoun. He is the author of um, American Islamophobia, Understanding the Roots and Rise of Fear. Um, you can get it wherever you get your books at. So Amazon, I got mine. I had to get it quick on Kindle. Uh, but that being said, um, hope you enjoyed that. Share it. We look forward to uh, seeing him in the near future. And I think we're going to cut the break now. Huh? It's a good time. All right, Radio Sound family, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back in just a minute. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el We are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at WCEV1450.com. And remember to keep up with us by following and liking our pages on Facebook or on Instagram, Twitter, and what's the other one? Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's that's a real loser move right there to forget Facebook. Okay. Uh, anyway, but you, huh? Maybe not. <laughs> yes, uh, you will find us at Radio Islam USA. Uh, and remember, remember, you can find us, uh, find this episode and past episodes wherever you get your podcast at Radio Islam USA. So uh, in our first our first segment, uh, we were speaking with Khalid Beydoun, um, author and, and scholar. We talked a lot about uh, well, his book, but the subject matter, we're talking about Islamophobia and we're talking about just this, this climate of, of fearing the, the stranger, fearing the one who's different. And at the seat of that right now, right, it's not new, but at the seat of it right now is our highest elected official in the land, right? President Donald J. Trump. What's uh, Ibrahim, what's the J stand for? I think it stands for John. John. Not joke. Not that I know of. Rimshot. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, so we're going to take a moment uh, and just look at some of the absolute, just just disarray uh, and confusion that he seems to enjoy, because every couple of days it seems like he's saying something, uh, he's tweeting something that has everybody, you know, uh, in in an uproar. And it makes sense to also look at he he is definitely a master of diversion uh, because he says a lot of things and there's other things that are going on that are really important. But one of the things we want to look at is I'm just really I don't know about you, but I am really, really tired of the the lies. Right. The alternate the alternative facts. I'm just really upset with them. I'm, I'm tired of them. Uh, yesterday, Homeland Security um, uh, Secretary. Kirsten Nielsen, she 
gave a press conference. She came out and she spoke right before uh, Sarah uh, Sanders, the White House uh, press secretary, and she fielded questions about President Trump's decision to send, in his words, to do what? To send the military, Mm -hmm. right? Now, of course, he had to step back from that because legally he can't send the military, right? The military can't be involved in, um, in what he wants them to do, right, as far as arresting people or the, the immigration. He could use the National Guard, but not, not the actual U.S. military. Right. Right. So had to step back from that. Um, but Which also shows it's kind of weird that he mm-hmm. couldn't make that distinction on his own when he was saying it. You're the president. That's kind of a, a different problem. I yes. Guess. Like, is there a workshop, right? Is there a workshop mm-hmm. for presidents? You know, a two-week workshop where you get to come in and find out this is the difference between the military and this is the National Guard. Um, you know, this is the executive branch. This is the ju- uh, judicial and this is the legislative. If not, I think he is going to set precedent for for there being that type of a, 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 a of, of a system for support for future presidents. Hopefully, hopefully we'll get some more folks who who understand the law uh, and and our system of government after him. Um, or, or hopefully he learns, right? But um, but back to uh, Secretary Nielsen. Did you hear uh, her remarks about uh, justifying uh, President Trump's decision or desire to use money that was appropriated for Department of Defense to build walls, uh, part of the border wall? Did you hear I, about this? I didn't hear about it, but it actually doesn't surprise me at all. Right, because it shows that they all kind of lump they all, they see everything in that category as mm-hmm. you know building a wall is actually going to keep the country safe and so on, which is probably not true. No, no, I, I, and I don't, I don't. I agree with you on that. Uh, the funny thing about it is, she said that well, the Department of Defense owns land along the border, so we would simply just use that to facilitate them doing what they do already. Right. And, and if they have walls that have um, that are in need of repair or we want to rebuild or whatever, then we'll do that. We can use that money for that. The problem with that statement was it was quickly debunked. Uh, it turns out that the Department of Defense does not own land on the border. Yes. Doesn't own any land. So once again, uh, this just. And I would assume that she, she being the Secretary of Homeland Security, that she would actually know that. So this this culture of getting up in front of people, a national audience, and just just lying to people. I mean, at some point, we're gonna we're gonna have another George Bush moment. Remember that guy threw a shoe at him? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Somebody needs to throw a shoe at at the next person that gets up and just just starts lying. Just have a shoe come out and pow, you know. Well, I think politicians have always lied, but in the past they were kind of good at it. I mean, at least, <laughs> like at least the lies made sense in the past. You know, and I was just like, yeah. Yeah, what, what are you talking about? And the fact that you can be fact-checked, mm-hmm. um, but, th- th- but they lie with abandon. The facts can be thrown out, though, by just saying, oh, it's fake news. Yeah, yeah, this is true. Now, going back to this this border wall, um, and as we were talking, you know, um, off air, that 
there are journalists that are actually accompanying the the migrants that are being made out to be this invading force that is going to destroy the fabric of America, and who and, and because of which we need to deploy our uh, national guard and we need to build a wall. But there are journalists actually that are with these people. That's yeah, yeah. Mm. So and it's about a thousand folks. Right, I've heard it numbered it from like 1,200 to, to 1,000 or whatever the number is. But people, let's, let's also keep this in mind. We're a nation of over 325 million people. That's a lot of people, 325 million people. And we're building a wall because we got a, the justification is we have 1,000 people who are fleeing poverty and violence and destabilization in their own uh, countries. And they're coming here looking for reprieve. They're looking for some opportunity, asylum or whatever. And we're going to build a wall. Well, I don't think the wall was immediately a response to just that. Yeah. It's something that goes back further, and it's something very um, ideological. It, it kind of uh, satisfies an urge, an ideological urge that people have, mm-hmm. to, um, which is based in kind of this ultra-nationalism or populism that we saw rise a couple of years ago in which the wave that Trump rode to the presidency mm-hmm. um, in large part, a lot of it had to do with that sentiment of you know um, preserving our national identity and so on and so forth. You could argue there's some white supremacy there too. Um, I but would. <laughs> yeah, I know you would. Um, but yeah, this it's satisfying this ideological urge to build the wall. That's what it's really about, I think, rather than statistically standing up to you know proving that what is keeping the country safe or not, or help the economy or not. And that that stuff is kind of um, secondary. Mm. Because we know that the news impacts the tweets, <laughs> the tweets of the president. Any of the folks on the quote-unquote left um, are having a lot of, seem to be having a lot of fun covering the fact that when Fox did a story Sunday and they covered this caravan that's coming in and saying, what are we doing about it? He's up tweeting Monday morning uh, about the the horde uh, that's on the way. Um, What this all reminds me of is Really, something I saw a long time ago is a video I was looking for, but I couldn't find. I couldn't find it. Yeah. I want to say it was by a channel called TPMTV, okay. which was very popular during the 2008 elections. But anyway, um, I think it was that. It might have been somebody else though on YouTube. Yeah. They came out with this video saying, trying to prove through uh, like video clips that they're saying that Fox. News is the de facto head of the Republican Party, <laughs> and I think when I when I think back to that video, I think that's more true mm-hmm. now than it's ever been before. Yeah, um, because it seems like President Trump's foreign policy and even his domestic policy mm-hmm. is based on large part by whatever is being broadcast on Fox News. That's like his go-to source for about that everything. About that, yeah. um, even. John Bolton, who he appointed recently, mm-hmm. was a, uh, he had been recently a contributor on Fox News. Mm. And so, yeah, it, it, Fox News really has a pretty strong uh, stranglehold over the presidency right now, I think. Yeah. And 
John Bolton is definitely anti-Islam. Uh, He's an interesting character. Yeah, we can <laughs> go on and on. That's a nice him. way. It's <laughs> a nice way to put it. Um, I think he 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 is dangerous. He actually imperils national security. Um, well, I mean, it depends on on on, on where you sit. Uh, if you're not one who wants to see uh, the United States commit more military resources um, to other lands, because any time we engage in the military uh, conflict, we also commit ourselves to a rebuilding uh, process as well, um, or uh, or stabilizing, trying to you know usher in whatever new government is going to be in place. So we, it's always a long-term uh, commitment that we make. So that's why I say I think if you're in the business of trying to keep our military out of conflict, then he is not the person that you want to see as a national security advisor because he's going he's gonna to push us in a completely different direction. Yeah, he has a, a reputation as being a warmonger, yeah. basically. Even the Iraq invasion, mm-hmm. which was completely discredited over time and was proven to be a farce and was proven to be based on complete lies. Um, A lot of the people who supported it, like President Trump himself, he kind of mildly or tacitly supported it Mm -hmm. um, at the time. He wasn't like really outspoken, but he kind of said like, okay, let's do it. Um, But even he's come out and said like, you know, it was a mistake, right? Right. Um, One of the few people who still try to argue that the invasion was a good thing is John Bolton. And now he's back in the White House, and he has uh, actu- actually a much more important position in making foreign policy than he did before. Uh, what position did he have, do you recall? He was the U.N. ambassador. He was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Okay, I believe, and they appointed him to that position, oddly enough, after he tried to belittle the U.N. He's tried to say that like, if the U.N., the United Nations doesn't exist or something like that if uh, like 10 stories of the UN building disappeared tomorrow nothing would happen you know that wouldn't change anything and right after that they uh, appointed him as as the ambassador to the UN Mm. so that shows you I guess kind of the thinking of the Bush White House yeah it's very weird Um, but yeah yeah that's wow that's wow um you know, one of the things that Trump has done, he's 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 a polarizing figure, but he's also, and I think a part of that is because he he just says whatever comes to mind. Uh, mm-hmm. That's one. But his uh, tendency to to make uh, generalizations about uh, about just com- about groups of people is something that um, I don't think I've seen it before, and and particularly when I'm when I'm thinking about now is his recent statements about the, I, th- I think he said Mexican when he was talking about uh, some of the migrants that are, that are coming over or the conditions that they're living in. So I don't know what particular country he was talking about, but he talked about some, uh, not statistics, but just the frequency of rape. Uh, well, that was that was Mexico, right? No, he's talking, he said today about the caravan itself. He said, quote, uh, women are being raped at levels that nobody has ever seen before. That's what President Trump said today. Oh, God. Uh, so some journalists who are like, accompanying, observing the caravan said, no, actually, that's not true. We haven't heard cases of anything like that. Right. But it's probably not going to matter to the president. 
But if that's the case, if that were true, wouldn't you want to provide these people some type of help? Yes. Yeah. Right. It's like, man, you yeah, just that's a good point. He's not really helping his case to say, you know, to keep them out. If this is really happening to them, then it's your duty to go and do something to help them. Oh, because it was their fault. It was their fault okay. they got raped. So they'll come here and there will be more rapes oh. because they're here. It's Trump logic I just used. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, um, what else do we have? I guess I would uh, throw out the observation here. What's that? It's been over a year since uh, President Trump has taken office. Mm-hmm. Now I think it's been long enough, over a year. Uh, it's 14 been, months. Yeah, yeah. I think it's been long enough now where we can take a look and say that, yes, um, this is more than just a transitional phase, that this White House really is chaotic. Yeah. Um, if you look at the turnover rate, mm-hmm. it's chaotic. If you look at the policies, they're inconsistent and chaotic. There's a lot of flip-flopping on pretty core issues. This issue right now about the wall and everything and, and sending the National Guard there, mm-hmm. this seems to be a response to uh, an immediate response to some of the tr- pundits that were out there in the media yep. saying that you know Trump isn't keeping his promises and so on. And so he immediately does this, this turnaround mm-hmm. and tries to reinforce a lot of his old opinions. So yeah. this influence that outside forces have on the administration, that's chaotic. The policies itself is chaotic. The turnover rate is chaotic. The turnover rate is really uh, astounding. That's um, unprecedented. What, the, what all of this is resulting in, mm-hmm. in my opinion, is what we see culminate in someone like John Bolton coming back. After Trump um, running on this notion that, you know, we need to get rid of these Washington insiders, we need to drain the swamp of all the corruption and traditional new conservative uh, stagnation, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, this uh, chaotic administration, especially the turnover rate and everything, has created almost a type of a vacuum. Right. Um, not a vacuum in the tra- traditional sense where someone is removed from power, but a vacuum where there's this empty space where there's no coherency, there's no cohesion. Mm-hmm. And so that vacuum has is starting to step up and be filled now, ironically, by the very people that Trump was supposed to uh, cleanse Washington and and the government of, which is these old-timers, these old, I call them like Huntingtonian uh, politicians. uh, Sorry, I'm so political. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Basically, these these traditional uh, neoconservatives from the Bush administration have now... The Rumsfeld crowd. Yeah, exactly, the Rumsfeld crowd. Um, they saw a gap, and now they've seems that they've found their way in. So I would start looking and preparing mentally for a really a throwback to the Bush administration's foreign policy and policy specifically dealing with Muslims and Islam. Hmm. Now you know what I'm going to jump back to the conversation with um, with Khalid, and one of the things uh, that he puts in his book. Uh, uh, data wise was that we from a from a visual standpoint we feel like President Obama was a was an interruption uh, of the policies that took place from uh, from Bush you know uh, uh, you know up to, from Clinton to Bush to uh, to Obama 
But in actuality, that foreign policy, it really didn't change much uh, at all in, in terms of, uh, of our relationship with Muslim-majority countries. And I think what happened is the long-term goals tend to stay pretty constant, mm -hmm. and it's the short-term goals or the means to achieve those goals which changes. I yeah. think there's, on, on a, I guess you could argue a superficial level or in like an intermediate level, <coughs> the Obama administration's policies changed in their approach to Arab countries and Muslim countries where they focused on um, building better relationships and uh, promoting human rights and promoting um, Western values and things like that. Sure. Whereas in the Bush administration, it was much more concentrating on the military uh, strategy and how to deal with the world and how to leverage ourselves. Obama administration used what they're called like soft power. There's yeah. hard power and soft power. Hard mm -hmm. power is like military might, power. basically. Money. Soft power, money, yeah. culture, globalization, etc. Mm -hmm. Yeah, different things. <clears throat> so, so I would argue that on a super on surface level, there was some change in as far as how do we achieve our long-term goals. Right. But there's not going to be a huge drastic change in um, our long-term foreign policy goals as long as the person being elected to the presidency and his administration are from these same um, upper echelon of institutions like Ivy League institutions and, and yeah, so which, on. Which he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they all they all. Now, have Trump that. was supposed to be the change in that. Um, yeah. as far as that was kind of his selling point, but now we see that that whole idea is kind of crumbling. Well, if you listen to him talk about his educational background, he went to uh, Wharton. Yeah. And, you know, I went to one of the top schools. And so, I mean, I don't really see that as being in, any any different. Uh, it's just that he doesn't carry himself as an intellectual. Um, the it's, it's different other thing, because there's a there's a, a caste system within American academia where where the yeah. people who make foreign policy and domestic policy, the, po the policy makers, mm -hmm. they're from uh, like a certain crowd, you know. Yeah. They're they're from certain schools, usually the top schools. Yeah, Ivy League, generally. Yeah, and yeah. Trump is kind of he had the advantage of um, having a rich father and whatnot, and going to a good school. But he's mm. certainly not from that crowd. That much is true. Now, has he really um, lived up to the to this ideal notion of clean, uh, uh, draining the swamp and all that? Seems to be well. I guess. No. Yeah. No, no. We'll see. I think uh, he, he'll say whatever. He'll he'll say whatever he feels like his audience wants to hear, um, yeah. and so he's. I think he has his finger on the pulse of of that crowd that that elected him. You know, he knows the anti-immigrant uh, sentiment. He knows that sex, uh, segment of America that even if his policies didn't differ uh, a great deal from his predecessors, um, just the fact that he was in office was an affront to their sensibilities. He knows that, you know, uh, President Obama was a, a thorn in the side of, of quite a few folks. Um, so he's, so he'll, he'll, he'll say whatever. But I, I bring this point up also. Any, anything that's not working, he goes back, he throws on the previous administration. He critiques. Mm -hmm. And I think he's done that probably more than I've, I don't think I've seen another president uh, critique the former administration uh, as much as I have seen this president do that. And the problem with that is if you open up the critique for one president, one administration, as a president, you open up a critique 
uh, critique for all uh, administrations. And that really does, that doesn't do anything as far as when it comes to uh, addressing the problem or issue that, you know, that you're looking at. It's just passing the buck. And at what point, what point do people say, okay, fine, even if it is Obama's fault, even if it is, what are you going to do to actually change it? Mm-hmm. At what point do you think people get tired of that that response, that play of, was Obama? What was Obama? Are you talking about when do, will Trump supporters get tired? Yeah, of when will when will his not, supporters get tired? Not of until after he leaves office. Oh, that's really grim. That's that's really grim. I should hope. I should hope that, especially with this, the the, the, the talk about the tariff, right? Which again goes back to the the whole chaotic element or um, it's just the whole chaotic vibe that has surrounded him since he, and his administration. He makes me think of a South Park character. Uh, for those of you who may have, uh, have watched South Park, there's this little fellow named Butters. And when the kids get together and they, they, they play and they do dress up, you know, like kids, they get little superheroes. Uh, Butters has a, his character is Captain Professor Chaos. And that's all he wants to do is just you know, that's that's what he's about, Professor Chaos. And that's who Donald Trump is. He's Professor Chaos. Because Yes, he's Professor <laughs> Chaos. I mean, how do you how else do you explain uh his administration constantly having to come out and run behind him to justify something that he's just said that the day before they said they the administra- administration was not doing, not interested in, uh, or still talking about. This is a regular yeah. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the character you're yeah. talking about, but it makes sense what you're saying. It's as if for the past year, 14 months or whatever, yeah, they've been in a constant state of damage control. Every day. <laughs> Which is not good. Every day. Every day. I wish, though, that we could have gotten the, the audio of Rex Tillerson um, talking about him. Mm. Um, and, and that's bad, right? Because... Here's where you have to think about how anger, we respond to anger. Usually our first instinct is, is respond with anger. Um, and it doesn't solve anything, right? So even as I say that, I recognize that just listening to Tillerson call him a moron or an idiot, it would only satisfy uh, a, a lower a lower urge of myself. <laughs> but I still wouldn't mind to have it as a ringtone. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Um yeah, so he's he is he's doing uh, he, he's doing a lot of damage. Uh, it, it's it's a chaotic uh, administration, and I think even his base his base would have to at some point say, "You're gonna have to you're gonna have to deliver on something." And a wall or uh, deporting uh, immigrants is not going to is not going to offset the effects of him trying to place uh, tariffs on aluminum and uh, steel with China, and then China turn around, uh, turns around and is talking about placing tariffs on soy, um, which Illinois is the largest you know producer of uh, of soy soybeans. Uh, it's not going to balance that out. Somebody pointed out in one of the articles I was reading a couple of days ago mm-hmm. that the, a lot of the tariffs that China is going to place, is placing and is going to place, are actually going to end up hurting 
um, people in those regions of the country where Trump had his strongest support. Exactly. Exactly. Iowa, um, uh, downstate Illinois. Uh, yeah, all of the, the far, farmland, right? That's, that's who he was saying that he was there. He was there to represent the forgotten Americans. And they are now going to be really upset that they have been recognized uh, because they've been recognized for all the wrong reasons. Um, hogs. Uh, I was listening to, um, who was I listening to? Well, well, it doesn't matter. But I was listening to a, a report, and they were talking about how the price of hogs has, has dropped by, per hog, like $20, right, which is, which is big for yeah. if that's the business that you're in, right? So uh, shout out to all of the Muslim hog farmers out there. Uh, <laughs> it should be none of you. It should be none of you at all. All right. But um, but they were talking about exports. You know how you know we our farmers basically their main market is not local. It's all exporting. Hmm. And there are certain cuts of meat that only are bought by places uh, like in China. Where they buy the snout and the, the the ears and stuff that would be thrown away, but that gives value, extra value um, to that hog. So their profits are about to be uh, impacted. So I think at a certain point, sensibility, right? The money is going to have is going to take uh, is going to take priority over the rhetoric. I don't know how much money it's going to take, but I think so. I think so. We have to wait and see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. All right, Radio Slam family. It has been uh, it's been fun. Hope you've uh, enjoyed the conversation. Uh, remember, if you like it, share it. Right, it makes you a good person when you share. So we want to thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. We thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. Uh, he and I are the producers for the second half of tonight's show. Uh, first half produced by myself. Uh, thank our guest, Khalid Beydoun. We thank our executive producer, Abdul Malik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guest are theirs and are to be taken as representative of Sound Vision Inc. And with that, we're going to leave you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.